what breaks my heart about the type of progressivism that is fleeing from diversity of viewpoint, true pluralism, that's trying to suppress these alternative views, alternative visions, is that they're betraying the core source of our strength, which is we get to truth by comparing viewpoints in good faith, not in the propagandistic way, not by drowning people out with fake stuff, conspiracy theories, Pizzagate, QAnon, whatever. But when good faith efforts to bring forth multiple points of view, including the ones that we think are wrong or don't want to hear, that's where we get truth. And that's where we get the ability to engage each other with respect. And that to me is the core of the kind of liberalism that I grew up with. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Jonathan Rausch, is a journalist and author of many notable articles and books on a range of political and other subjects. His most recent book is called The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. We had a very real conversation about some of the concepts in the book and how they apply to big dilemmas in our current society and politics, including the attacks on the institutions that we use to pursue inquiry, build knowledge, and sort out what is truthful. It's the kind of conversation that makes me want to keep talking to smart people, both those I agree with and those I sometimes do not. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Jonathan Rausch about his new book, The Constitution of Knowledge. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Jonathan, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Jonathan Rausch. I'm a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington and a contributing writer of The Atlantic and a working journalist since 1983. And a author of a bunch of books? I think maybe eight and a half, depending how you count a revision. Yeah, eight and a half books and many articles and in 2005, won the National Magazine Award, which is the magazine industry's equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. A great accomplishment. I understand that you grew up in Phoenix. Is that true? That is correct. Yeah. Phoenix, Arizona, born in 1960. Barry Goldwater voted for himself at my school where I was in kindergarten. I went in the 1972 election at age seven to my precinct to vote for McGovern quote, vote for McGovern in a precinct that went four to one for him, but uh, didn't carry the day nationally. That was a tough election for Democrats. It was. What kind of family? Was it a political family at all? Kind of, yeah. My parents migrated from New York City, from the Bronx, and my father was educated at City College. 
10 years after Irving Kristol and, and that whole group, Nathan Glazer. So very Jewish, very intellectual. My father was a Democrat who then swung, actually, 1972, was among the Jewish Democrats who swung right, fearing that McGovern would abandon the country in terms of security, and became more of a conservative, which was what happened to a lot of people at the time. My mother and father got divorced. Around the same time, my mother moved to Berkeley and became kind of a hippie, actually. So I had both lifestyles, Phoenix in the 70s, which was very conservative and libertarian, and Berkeley in the 70s, which was lots of marijuana and ashrams and spirituality movements. And I even knew some people who were in the Symbionese Liberation Army. My dad taught at City College English literature right out of uh, grad school and then to Colorado where he took his next teaching job. And my parents were, the way they were different was one taught math and one taught English. So I had two sides of the brain there, but not in the normal male being the technical side. So I thought that was good. You, like I did, went to Yale, and but you studied history. And I read that you graduated summa. I knew a lot of people who did, and I knew that that meant they were really good students. What did you learn at Yale studying history? I'm still living off of the intellectual capital I learned at Yale. And one of those things was how science works. I did history of science and did a thesis, which parts of it are incorporated in the book we may be about to discuss, my new book, The Constitution of Knowledge. And among many things I learned is I learned some life lessons. Like before I got to Yale, I thought I was the smartest person in the room and Yale shattered that illusion. But I also learned where knowledge comes from, that it comes from interactions with others, not out of my head. And that became my touchstone as a journalist. You know, you go talk to people, you find stuff out. The stuff you think you know, you're usually wrong. When I read the first half of your book, approximately, it really recalled a political theory course I took there. It was like political theory since Machiavelli. There's a lot of reference to political theory in the Constitution of Knowledge book. But I want to go through your career a little bit more just to kind of get to know you and, and let other people get to know who the writer is. Tell me about like post-college, you went to be a journalist at a smaller paper to start with? Yeah. In those days, there was a career path for journalists. This is pre-internet. And the career path was, if you could start out at a local paper where you cover lots of things and, and build some experience on the street and learn how to source a story and how to write fast. And I went and did that in Winston-Salem, North Carolina for a couple of years. Also learned about barbecue. Also needed a fresh place to go where I'd never lived to start working out my sexuality because I was gay and deeply repressed and very, very twisted. If anyone's interested, my, my best written book and also my shortest is a little memoir called Denial, My 25 Years Without a Soul. So I moved to Washington when I was 25 to take a job at a magazine called National Journal, writing on the budget and economics, very policy, very nerdy magazine. And that's when I fell in love with policy and trying to figure out what the right answer is in public policy, which is really hard and really interesting. And that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. And from my take on it, pretty prolific writing for most of the flagship publications that one would hear about from Atlantic to the New York Times. And if you had to characterize the general areas that you write in, what would they be? There are a few buckets. One big bucket has been gay rights, gay marriage, gay equality. I've been out 
and writing on that since, uh, wow, now 30 years, since my early 30s. Another big bucket is how to keep liberal societies afloat and the challenges they face, and that's politics. And now it's the epistemic crisis, subject of my new book. It's very hard to construct these societies. We'll talk about that. But you know they involve lots of rules and lots of trust in institutions, and they're very counterintuitive. And I got interested very early. And so how do you make this work? And how do you deal with the challenges? So that's been another big bucket. And then lots of miscellaneous stuff. I became a journalist because I'm too restless to specialize. So lots of it is just you know things that interested me that I wanted to learn about. Animal rights, for example. Well, I'm probably the world's second most famous introvert. I wrote this little humorous piece called Caring for Your Introvert, which for a long time was the Atlantic's most read piece online. After Susan... Susan Cain then came along and wrote a best-selling book, which I never did. I, I, I'm so restless. You know, I write an article and then I'm done and move on. But that article will go on my gravestone. You have a book about happiness in middle age? Yeah. Yeah. My last book is on how the aging process affects happiness and why everything people think they know about that is upside down and backwards and wrong and how we make ourselves miserable by misunderstanding it. And you have a kind of a precursor to this book, I think. What was it? Kindly Inquisitors book? Yeah. Kindly Inquisitors, the new attacks on free thought. Yeah. This is very much a sequel. It develops the ideas that that, well, it was my second published book and the first one I started writing back in my late 20s. And that's about where knowledge comes from in a peaceful, free, and knowledgeable society and attacks on it at the time 30 years ago. Unfortunately, it's still very relevant. A previous guest mentioned to me that you were working on a book, that it was about the Constitution. That's when I reached out to you. And I have to tell you that this was not the book that I thought because I didn't really know what it would be. But I think this is an ambitious book and a book that I admire a lot. I'm happy to hear that. It's certainly ambitious. It is. I mean, and it was also something that was personally useful to me because I'm talking all the time to a range of political people. And some of them are progressive activists that are very embedded in a particular culture that you address later on in the book that I often or sometimes feel very cautious about challenging because of some of the you know, repercussions. But let's take the book kind of generally first. Yeah, though I'd like to hear more about what you just said. If we, if we can come back to it, I'd like to know how this inflects your intellectual and social life. Yeah. So let me ask you this. When did you start writing this? That's always kind of a hard question. I'm kind of curious, like, to what degree is this provoked by Trump and his attack on multiple of the key institutions of society? And to what degree did it come from other sources? It's very provoked by Trump, though not only Trump, but there may be some irony in the fact that Kindly Inquisitors was provoked by the Ayatollah Khomeini and his attack on Salman Rushdie. And this book was provoked in no small measure by Trump and his attack on reality. I kind of checked out of the epistemology business, figuring out what's true and what's not true and how societies develop that question. It's the most important question to, to keep any society together. What do we believe is true? What do we think is false for public purposes? It causes routinely wars and schisms and all kinds of problems. The society can't solve it. So I wrote this book about it, Kindly Inquisitors, and 
Then I moved on and did other things, did gay marriage, gay rights. Then around 2014, 2015, I started to notice at first out of the corner of my eyes, some kind of new problems. One was the heightening on campus of demands that students be kept safe. Another was the use of social media to gang up on people and demand that they be fired or punished or ostracized kind of literally overnight. I and some other gay people and friends of gay marriage wrote a public letter um, expressing great worry about the firing at Mozilla of a CEO, a guy named Brandon Ike. He was targeted by a social media attack after it came out that he had supported Proposition 8, overturning gay marriage in California. And we thought, well, we're for gay marriage. We don't like Prop 8, but this guy shouldn't lose his job for just, you know, saying that. So I keep my eye on all this. And then along comes the Russian interventions in the 2016 election, which we're completely unprepared for. But then the big thing that comes along is Donald Trump. And Trump does something we have never seen in American politics before. And we didn't know it at the time. We didn't have words for it. Now we do. He uses a classic Russian disinformation tactic called the fire hose of falsehood, where you just drown people in so many untruths and half-truths that they no longer know which way is up, which way is down, who to trust. And we'd never seen anything like this. We didn't know how to react to it. Of course, the Russians were doing it too. We've never had an information warfare campaign unleashed against America by an American in this way. And that's when I started thinking, okay, this has got to be figured out. I've got to go talk to the best people and do some of the best and find some of the best thinking and do some of the best thinking about how democracy can respond to these attacks, trolling, canceling, massive disinformation. I think there's a, a term in the debate world, which I was never part of, called a gish gallop, where someone just, it's basically that same thing, a fire hose of falsities or just so many things get thrown up that you can't respond to all of them. And, and some of the people, you know, the anti-evolutionists or people like that or deniers of, of uh, climate play that Yeah, game. you know, this is a little, a little different. I can say this because I'm still part of the debate world. I debated and I judged debates. So there is this tactic where you dump everything you can out so that people can't keep up. But it's supposed to be true. And if you're caught making up evidence or lying, actually, you lose the debate. Yeah, that's a bit, bit different. Uh, this is a bit different because trolls and uh, disinformation propagandists, they're completely indifferent to whether a statement is true. All they care about is, does it occupy people's minds? Does it obsess them? Does it spread online? Does it squeeze out, crowd out things that are true? Does it demolish trust? Does it divide the target society? That's what they're going for. It's social manipulation is what they're doing. What's interesting is that Trump can be very forthcoming about that. And you cite a bunch of examples in the book about where he admits that that's what he's doing, or people report that he put forward a piece of information to hide bad news about his daughter or something. Like he, he's well aware that he's playing that game. He is a master at this game. He doesn't bother to hide it. You don't need to hide it. Actually, these tactics can be so effective that they work even if people know that they're being worked on, at least at first. So, and the Russians, you know, the Russians make no secret of what they're doing. You decide to write this book, but the way that you put it together with three different things, the economy and how it works, the sort of Adam Smith idea of the economy, the U.S. Constitution, and what you call the Constitution of Knowledge, and, and what they have in common, and what 
makes them successful. Talk a little bit about those parallels. There are two really big, new, important ideas in this book that have a shot at outlasting me. The first big idea is the idea that it's not the marketplace of ideas, it's the constitution of knowledge. And that's the question you just asked. And I'll talk about that for a minute. The second, which I'll just lay out there so that people see it, so that it's dangling, is you're being manipulated. And it's about the attacks on the constitution of knowledge and understanding them as powerful weapons to manipulate the information environment. So the big insight of this book is that I missed something in my first book, Kindly Inquisitors. Why do I come back and write a second book? Well, Kindly Inquisitors is based on the model that we all mostly have about where knowledge has come from, which is you have free speech and then you have a marketplace of ideas and we criticize each other. And knowledge is what survives at the end of the day. And that's a very good model. It's, it's a very true model and it's an important description of how science works in journalism and other reality-based fields. But it turns out to be insufficient because it, it misses all the important stuff in the middle. It's like saying, well, how do you get a transportation system? You get a bunch of cars and you put the people in the cars and you're done. Then the people drive around and traffic emerges and things are great. Well, no, you need roads and traffic laws and driver education and traffic enforcement and DMV. You need all the other things that are in place to turn that into a system. So if all you do is set people loose to debate each other, say on an online platform, you won't get knowledge out of that. You'll get a bunch of people running around making noise, mostly insulting each other in order to try to build their own reputations in their group. In order to get knowledge out of that, you need a lot of structure. So it turns out there's a whole lot of social settings you need to get right. It's like politics. It's like, you know, suppose you said, so how do you set up American democracy? Well, you vote every two years, every four years, and that's it. Well, no, you need Congress, you need political parties, you need courts, you need checks and balances, you need rules, you need all kinds of things. That's what Madison sets up for politics. Well, it turns out a lot of people around the same time set up the same kinds of things for knowledge. And these are all of the places that bring people together in institutions where they can compare ideas and in a dispassionate way, try to figure out which ones are better and then move them through the system. They're like pumping stations or filtering stations. The, the better ideas get moved through the system. The worse ideas get lopped off, get filtered out. Uh, so what am I talking about? Talking about journalism and newsrooms and academia, academic conferences, periodicals, um, scientific societies. Courts are part of this. Courts are reality-based. They're sorting out truth from falsehood. But these are all the nodes in the system where the actual work goes on, acquiring all these ideas and all these hypotheses from all of these people and figuring out and sorting and, and evaluating. Well, that's what's under attack right now. So the constitution of knowledge says, so what are the rules? How are people doing this? Who's doing it? How do we defend it? How do we protect it? I think that the attacks on it that you point out from the trolls on the right mainly and from what I think of as much more well-intentioned, many rules on the left. I'll give you some examples from my life. Yesterday, I was driving home from Bethesda with my 11-year-old daughter and she explained to me that we don't live in a good country. And I thought about when I was a kid and my parents didn't 
think everything was great about America, but they thought it was a great country for a whole lot of reasons, especially because our ancestors left far worse places. And to hear that was kind of shocking to me. And when I deal with my 18-year-old, we have a lot of conversations where she says to me, Dad, you can't say that. You're going to get yourself into trouble. And a lot of times what I've said is something might be a little ignorant or it might be something that is newly controversial. But I can feel, even in my own family, some of the effects of what's being transformed. It's not exactly on what you're dealing with, but it's close. Oh, it's very much part of what I'm dealing with. So what I've been describing so far is the reality-based community. That's the the many professionals and institutions all over the world who adhere to the constitution of knowledge. A lot of rules, a lot of right and wrong ways to do things. Like, you know, you're not going to get anywhere in the science or in mainstream journalism by just attacking the integrity of someone. You got to show that they're wrong. Lots of stuff like that. So how do you attack a system like that? It gets to the second point and the one that you're experiencing right now, which is you're being manipulated. There's this thing called information warfare, propaganda. Russians call it active measures. Lots of words for it. But this is not about comparing and criticizing ideas to get to truth. This is about organizing and manipulating the social and media environment for political advantage. So how do you do that? Lots of ways. One is old-fashioned government censorship. You just ban stuff and put them in jail. Not very effective in today's environment. Another is what we talked about earlier, the fire hose of falsehood. You can effectively censor by drowning out the truth and just confusing everyone so they don't know what to believe. And, and the true message doesn't even get through. We see a lot of that around the election in 2020. Another way to do it is social coercion. Nothing new about that. Tocqueville describes it when he comes to America, 1835. John Stuart Mill warns against it as the biggest threat to freedom of speech in 1859. Bigger threat than government, he says, is imposed social conformity. It's very effective, though, because if you can repress what people think they can say, then you can alter the information environment so that minorities, people who actually don't either represent the truth or aren't representative of the community, can control what's said and therefore create the impression that they're in fact the majority. Uh, people get afraid to say what they think. What emerges is what sociologists call spirals of silence. I'm afraid to say it. You're afraid to say it. We look at each other. We're both afraid. Lots of people do that. And pretty soon, the comment's never even made. It disappears from the discourse, not because it's wrong and not because most people don't believe it, but because it's been suppressed. Well, if you can do that effectively, you can dominate the information environment. You can impose your will. You're feeling that. Those tactics are being used very effectively right now, sometimes for good motivations, sometimes for not so good motivations. But if you convince people like your daughter that it is very dangerous to say or think certain things, then spirals of silence will form epistemic rabbit holes, echo chambers, all of these distortions of the information environment that we're seeing right now. And that is not a fun place to be. When you were writing this book, which you go after uh, things like cancel culture, did you feel the eyeballs of that crowd on you? What an interesting question. Yeah, you always feel the eyeballs on you. Of course, I'm a professional journalist. 
and my training from day one was always think about your audience. Think about communicating. In my world, being misunderstood is always the fault of the sender, never the receiver. I tried in this book not to pull punches for fear of being canceled, and I'm fortunate to, to work for entities that are good about defending their people, controversial ideas. But yeah, I worried about it. You'd be crazy not to worry about it. How do you set the boundary between, I mean, there are people who deserve cancellation, criminals who assault actresses in their offices, avowed racists that preach hate. You know, there's, there's got to be some boundaries, but people are losing careers and being silenced in various ways for infractions that are far slighter and that ought to be part of a reasoned dialogue. Yeah. So to answer your media question, so there are no bright lines. And some of what we think of as canceling is, is just avoiding people who are obnoxious, right? And that's part of how in society we, we regulate conduct. However, as you'll see in the book, I use a diagnostic approach. I use a checklist of seven or so things. The more of those things you see, the more you're in the realm of true canceling. And those are things like, is the intent punitive? Not to refute the idea, but to punish the person. Is the campaign organized? Is it not just one person saying, you know, Nathaniel, I really disagree with you, or I really wish you hadn't said that, or you're not welcome for dinner anymore. But is it an organized campaign of people recruiting other people to gang up on you? Is there a secondary boycott so that your friends and acquaintances are themselves being pressured? Oh, you know him. Well, you're in the targets too. Are they lying about you? Not reading what you wrote, not giving a truthful account of what you said, just lying? So those are four of them, and I could go on. But the more of those you have, the more clearly you're in the realm of basically out-and-out coercion. And that's where I draw the line. When you get deep into this realm of, of bullying and coercion in order to control the information environment, then no, I wouldn't even do that to a Nazi. And I say that as a homosexual Jew. I've never experienced that. I've talked to people who've come into the crosshairs and you know been doxxed and attacked in various ways that are quite gruesome and, and psychologically wounding but I have not myself experienced it. But what I have experienced is, say, interviewing a person, having them say something that I feel like it ought to be challenged and deciding not to. And how does that fit in? These are people who were saying something, say, progressive, and you were afraid that you would lose credibility in your circles. Maybe. Someone might make a statement that... I think it referred to in your book as equalitarian. Any differences in groups are because of discrimination, right. basically, yeah. Right. If you challenge that in a certain context, that feels risky. And it probably is risky. Yeah. Yeah, and so you keep your head down, and so it never gets set. And when stuff never gets said, the echo chambers form, and the progressives actually become lazy and out of touch, and they forget how to talk to ordinary Americans who believe those things. And ordinary Americans who believe those things feel that they're the ones who are oppressed and victimized, and they go out and vote for Donald Trump. So the whole thing is dangerous and counterproductive, even from a progressive point of view. It might be also somebody who says something about a progressive tactic that sounds good in the world of progressive activists, 
but doesn't play well. The language is is too new. It's not known by people. It's got rules that are very sharp and normal people wouldn't follow them. Yeah, the whole point of the reality-based community and the constitution of knowledge is, is the way it works is by forcing us into contact with people with different views. Intellectual diversity, viewpoint diversity is the whole heart of the thing. If you're only talking to people who agree with you, you can't make knowledge, you can't see your biases and errors, and you lose touch with reality. I think that happens to a substantial portion of the left on some of these issues, and I think it hurts them. There's a case, you, I'm sure you heard about this, and a left-leaning Democratic analyst, very well-respected guy named David Shore. Was on my show, by the way, before this. Yeah, Before that happened. Yeah. He's an amazing guy. He's a brilliant guy. And I'm sure you know the story, but it's, yeah, he's in his 20s. He did exactly what you described. He tweeted an accurate description of an academic study, which by the way, was by a person of color, an African-American, that found that violent protests are politically counterproductive. And because he did this in the context of last summer when people were protesting, uh, the mob campaign came after him immediately and they actually, they went to his boss on Twitter. Uh, One menacing tweet said, come get your boy. You know, by the way, that tweet was also a guest on my show. She is not an evil person. She's working hard on important things on the left, but she felt strongly that he was out of line and things get caricatured, but he ended up getting fired for tweeting accurately a analysis that ought to be discussable. And the Democrats and progressives need to hear if they want to be politically effective. All they're doing is helping the other side because they need to understand how to convert voters. And that's what David Shore is trying to tell them. Did you ask this person why she said come get your boy and what she meant by come get your boy? I interviewed both of them before this incident. What do you make of that tweet? What do you think she's trying to do there? Because you know her at least a little. It's hard to get in someone else's head, right? But what what I guessed was she's saying, I know your boss. You should like intervene. I don't want to be fighting with this young guy about this. Accept my expertise in this discussion. I don't want to joust with another uppity young white man about something which I know better than him. Something like that. So it's kind of like telling a parent, come get your boy, bring him inside, get him under control. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it meant fire this guy. I doubt that. It sure sounded menacing. Well, in retrospect, when you see what happens, I should probably call her back and see if I can talk to her about it and talk to him about it. Yeah. I'd like to know how she felt about all that. I'd like to know if she celebrated when he was fired or if she recognized something had gone very wrong. I suspect that while it's a a good example, like I talked to another guest of the show who knew David and, and said that, you know, well, it's not the only instance where David has pissed people off. And, and so there may be more to why he was let go than just this instance you know, and that maybe the story is a little more complicated. Well, that's right. You know, there's always things going on behind the scenes and there are always people who say, well, you don't know the whole story. But in a case like this, it sends a clear message. Why would anyone take the risk of publicizing a message that progressives don't want to hear at the wrong moment? And that's a double win for Donald Trump because 
his voters see this and they think, okay, I'm being canceled. I don't like that. I have to vote for Trump to defend me. And progressives don't get the information they need to win elections. And that, you know, both of those things worry me because my my priority right now is to keep Republicans, Trumpian Republicans, as far from power as they possibly can be until this madness passes. And for that, we need a healthy progressive movement, which is capable of strategizing well. There was a discussion about whether Democrats should explicitly talk about race when they are talking about certain policies. And some analysts had done some experiments and decided that it wasn't helpful, that it, it like politically was not a valuable thing to do. We have communication consultants who have done a lot of work in that area who feel like it is the only way to bring everybody along to be very explicit about that. And they're very persuasive. My only feeling is we ought to be able to discuss it, to analyze it, to think about how do we most effectively communicate without somebody saying it can only be this way for ideological reasons. That's a complicated question. There's lots of ways to think about what effective communication is in the short run, in the long run, with experiments, with not, you know, with the bigger picture in mind. But you have to be able to talk about it. Well, we won the gay marriage debate. I was involved in that from starting in 1995. And now I'm married to a guy, pinch me. I never thought I'd live in that country. Lots of things happen and things were really bad before they got good at the end. But the main thing that happened is that we were forced to confront a majority community that thought the idea of same-sex marriage was self-contradictory and disastrous public policy and an insult to God. And we had to go around every day trying to figure out, so how do we make this case? How do we figure out how to reach these audiences? I can tell you what does not work, which is, Nathaniel, you're a fucking bigot because you don't already agree with me on same-sex marriage. That was tried. I can tell you that it failed. It not only failed, it backfires in the worst possible way. What starts to work is when you approach people who disagree with you and you try to lay it out and you try to listen to them and you try to respond and then you try to respond in ways that that might appeal to them. Like you say, well, you're a social conservative. You believe in stronger communities and that's what we're trying to do. Where, you know, if I can get married and build a household, then I'll have the protections of, of, of my husband. I'll be a better community member. I won't be on welfare. I won't be as depressed all those kinds of things. So you figure these things out, but you have to do it by having these conversations. You cannot do it by talking among yourselves in a closed room. And I worry that progressives are doing the latter. You know, it's like what your daughter said. I mean, what are the, what's on her list of things you're not allowed to say? Can you challenge affirmative action policies, for example? Yeah. It's a lot of it has to do with gender, race, uh, privilege. These are kind of the touchstones right now. And they are among the most important things that we need to discuss. I have to say, I've learned a lot, particularly about gender. I'm fine with being challenged in a sharp way. And that is not me being canceled. That's me having a conversation with an intelligent person. But outside in the world, what she's worried about, in, in answer to kind of your previous question, she's worried that like, I'm going to get myself into trouble. I'm going to make the family look bad. You know, I'm going to 
end up, if I'm not careful, saying something that isn't thought out or that exposes me to some kinds of retribution. So what I was probing a bit, maybe it's impossible to know. Does she think the fundamental problem here is that you're wrong and you have embarrassing points of view? Or does she think the fundamental problem here is you may be right, but we can't afford to be caught saying that? Because those are two different propositions. Yeah, I think it varies by instance. There are things that she's thought I've been quite wrong on, some of which she's been right. What I've tried to do is, you know, like the other day, Jeff Bezos came up and she said, he's a bad person. He shouldn't have that much wealth and, he, and he's not doing enough sharing it. And I said, well, let's read a little bit about it. Like he just gave 10 billion away for this cause. It's more complicated than just like, this guy's bad because Amazon doesn't pay its warehouse workers well. There's a fair discussion to be had about this whole subject. Let's talk about it more broadly. And so that these things come up uh, fairly frequently, I think. And being a parent in this day and age, there's this other challenge. Yeah, you could probably talk about wealth and taxes. I'm guessing on a subject like are humans fundamentally sexually dimorphous? I'm guessing, for example, you might run into problems there if you said, you know, basically there are exceptions, but there are two human sexes, male and female. She would probably caution you against saying that. But like to have a discussion about whether a trans athlete should compete, you're putting yourself at risk to talk about that. Yeah. And and this, this is also a shame because these are hard questions and they're questions we're going to have to work through. And even if we think we know the right answer to start with, we've got to convince a lot of other people of those answers. And, and there's the only way out is through. Uh, we could not have won gay marriage by trying to persuade people that the age-old definition of a marriage, which is male to female, not by the way, one man to one woman, traditionally it's one man to many women, but always male to female, we, we couldn't have gotten where we were going by telling them, well, that's just a bigoted viewpoint and you're just a homophobe if you think that's what marriage is. We had to get to the point where we could persuade people, well, no, there's another way of looking at it. You're not erasing marriage by adding these people to it. You're not erasing biological sex by saying there are exceptions. Whatever the argument is going to be, you have to make it and, and you, you have to let other people hear it. In an earlier age, the fact that you are gay might have been used to undermine what you said. Might have been. Would have been, 100%. Oh, I was wondering if you felt that being gay now provided you some insulation from attacks from the left. You have this experience of fighting for liberation, for being very involved in a big civil rights fight. Do you think that adheres to your advantage in putting forth arguments that might be viewed by some? Yeah, it probably does. I don't think it insulates me from attack because you know how how the hard left can be. Uh, they don't really care. They're just going to, if they want to come after you, they'll figure out a way to do it. You can be black, you can be gay, you can be poor, doesn't matter. But in terms of my ability to communicate with people and to confuse people about the usual boxes, they're, they're not used to hearing the kinds of arguments that I make necessarily from an atheistic homosexual Jew. And that makes me a little bit hard to categorize and, and dismiss. 
harder than if I were, you know, a conventional conservative or a conventional liberal. So that gets me maybe 10% further in terms of of getting in the front door to make my my arguments. Towards the end of the book, you talk about a a student who asks you a question that you've heard in lots of different ways before and and which you have to come up with a response over time to what was that question and what was what's your answer this is a question that i started hearing again and again starting around 2014 2015 whenever i was in college someone would stand up and say what do i say when someone tries to silence me or marginalize me by saying check your privilege or you're a white heterosexual male you have nothing to say in this conversation or some version of of disqualification. Initially, I would try to come up with pithy responses to to hit back with, and that didn't really work because you know, it never seemed quite right and it wasn't you know, you don't know what the situation looks like and quoting John Stuart Mill at them is not going to be effective. Then I started saying, well, listen, um, you're going to have to figure out the answer to that question for your generation because it's different from what it was for my generation. And that's probably even worse, right? You know, it's like go figure it out. I can't help you. And it took a while, but I finally realized that the answer was in front of my nose the whole time. And it's the answer isn't what you say to them. It's that you say to them. It is that you not shut up. Remember, big lesson in my book, you're being manipulated. This is information warfare. People are trying to exclude you from the conversation so that they can dominate it and create a false consensus, a false version of reality in which theirs is the only point of view that can be discussed or is worth discussing. And you can foil that plot just by speaking, just by refusing to be silenced politely and civilly, but with determination and confidence say, well, I disagree with that. I am qualified to speak and I will speak. And here's what I have to say. If you do that, and if other people do that, then it's much harder to win this information warfare game of suppression, of spirals of silence. Each of us has some power to break spirals of silence. That is why totalitarian regimes like the Soviet Union was so desperately afraid of the voice of a single physicist, Andrei Sakharov. It really, it doesn't take that many people speaking out to change these social dynamics because there are a lot of other people who are not speaking out who have their doubts and questions. I spent the last five years with Trump kind of inhabiting my brain in a way that I think he inhabited all too many of our brains. And that put me in a state of frequent anxiety about the country. I don't think he's done. I don't think his Trumpism is done. It's pretty obvious. I think we're still in a battle, I guess, as Biden said, for the soul of the nation. How do you apply what you're writing about in Constitution of Knowledge to that battle going forward? How does what you're thinking about inform what we should be doing? In a lot of ways. The first is to understand what I keep saying, you're being manipulated. It's to understand that the flight from reality, the conspiracy theories, the fire hose of falsehood, Right now, what's going on in conservative media, this is not ordinary politics. This is not a few random sociopaths saying nutty things. This is a concerted 
very sophisticated information warfare campaign being run on a national, if not global scale by some very smart people. And they're making a lot of money off it and they're getting a lot of power out of it. So just understanding that is the first step. And we have made great strides toward understanding it. That's very important. Both people in the, the, the elite world, you know, academics and politicians, for example, and you are much more sophisticated about understanding this than you were four years ago. I am. I couldn't have written this book four years. I, I was, what? What are you talking about? More important, the American public is getting more sophisticated. The media are figuring out how to be less manipulable, for example, not by repeating everything that's fed to them on the grounds that somebody said it. So that's the first and most important thing. Get smart. Understand you're being manipulated and what to do about it. And then there's tons of other stuff in the book about more specific ways to cope with this. For example, a lot of the problem is that social media uh, and digital media are designed to be just brilliant tools for disinformation, better for spreading disinformation than for spreading actual truth. But it doesn't have to be that way. And some very smart people are working on making changes in these products and their policies, which are going to help slowly but surely. It's not the whole fight, but it's going to help. We can talk about what some of those are, for example. And then there's stuff like education, teaching media literacy turns out to be helpful, critical thinking, all of that turns out to be useful. A bunch of other stuff. It's hard to summarize, Nathaniel, because this is an all of society attack that's coming from conservative media, from Trump, from the Republican Party, from abroad, from all over the place. And it's going to require an all of society response from many, many different kinds of institutions. It, it seems like the key that was very helpful to me in reading the book is to understand that you have to defend pluralism. You have to defend having multiple viewpoints. You have to, to make the case all the time that in the economy, in politics and in knowledge, we have to allow and protect a variety of voices and that that adheres to the benefit of minorities, of minority thought, of all of us in the long run. That I can't overemphasize it enough. And what breaks my heart about the type of progressivism that is fleeing from diversity of viewpoint, true pluralism, that's trying to suppress these alternative views, alternative visions, is that they're betraying the core source of our strength, which is we get to truth by comparing viewpoints in good faith, not in the propagandistic way, not by drowning people out with fake stuff, conspiracy theories, Pizzagate, QAnon, whatever. But when good faith efforts to bring forth multiple points of view, including the ones that we think are wrong or don't want to hear, that's where we get truth. And that's where we get the ability to engage each other with respect. And that to me is the core of the kind of liberalism that I grew up with and that got me my rights as a gay person. And nothing breaks my heart more than to see today. It's very commonly believed the idea of free speech is a conservative idea. It oppresses minorities and the marginalized. It's a tool of the powerful. Lots of people say that. That breaks my heart because gay people would be, we would never have gotten anywhere without the freedom of speech that the Supreme Court granted us in 1958 we'd just be nowhere. And the same is true of African-American civil rights. And 
women's rights and now trans rights, all of these things. There's kind of two threads in my head that you can pick up in the book. One is, well, there's awful lot to be worried about. And there are these, you know, the, the way that social media and the, and the online world is slanted against the truth is kind of obvious and terrible. And the way the left is pushing conformity sometimes has, has bad effects like this. But there's also a thread about how strong these big institutions are, the, the institutions like the Constitution of Knowledge. In that way, it's, it's kind of optimistic. But where do you land in the end? I, I, land, I land hopeful, which is different from either pessimistic or optimistic. I remind people that free speech, intellectual diversity are completely crazy ideas by historical standards. I mean, the idea that, that if I say things that are blasphemous, heretical, seditious, wrongheaded, offensive, that I should not only be tolerated, but protected. That's a deeply counterintuitive, crazy sounding idea. And it's justified only by the fact that it's also history's single most successful social idea. It makes possible the peace, freedom, and knowledge we take for granted. But because it's such a strange idea, it's constantly under challenge. It always will be. We just have to get up every day and defend it from scratch. Our children will have to do the same and their children and their children until the end of time. And we just need to be cheerful about it because actually we're doing incredibly well. I think that there are a lot of positive signs. Remember that the the trolls and the Trumpists and the cancelers and the rest of them, they they took us by surprise. They seized on these powerful new weapons like digital media, like conservative media, and weaponized them. And they acted very fast. And it takes a while to gather yourself and respond, but I think that's starting to happen. Uh, I take this podcast as a good sign. You're a progressive and you're starting to think about how do we push back? How do we make sure that the progressive movement remains an open and intellectually open environment, one that doesn't go down epistemic rabbit holes? I want to say to anyone who's listening, I challenge you to read this book from cover to cover and think about where you fit into these big systems and what your responsibility is to maintaining important positive achievements of humans. That's a good way to think of it. Has someone participated in an online shaming campaign? Well, you, you can choose not to do that, actually. That's a very easy thing to not do. Have you retweeted a salacious or outrageous sounding news story without bothering to actually read it to find out if it's actually true or checking it? Well, you don't have to do that. You can stop doing that. If people don't do that, it gets a lot harder to use these tools that disinformation campaigners are using. If you see someone who's ganged up on because of their unpopular point of view, do you support that person or do you let them hang out to dry? Do you maybe say to the people ganging up on them, hey, wait a minute, this isn't fair. This isn't right. There are all kinds of things that we can do as individuals to preserve the constitution of knowledge. And you're doing one of them on this show right now, I think. I well, appreciate the compliment, and I take it as such. Is there a question that I didn't ask that I should have? No, it's been a marvelous conversation. I just wish we had more time to find out how a parent actually copes with this situation. When your daughter gets in the car and says, you know, this is a bad country 
what in the world do you do? I thought my job was to contest it and to talk about the course of history, but also to wonder about what is coming to our kids through the through their friends, through school. It's a mix now. It's it's not all bad. It, there's a lot of progress in what they're learning, but there's also like if you teach the bad before you teach the good, then maybe people don't really understand why this is a great nation, which it is. Yeah, that's a little heartbreaking because I have great uncles who died in the Holocaust and even a generation before me, I could never live the life I'm living right now. And I certainly couldn't live it in many parts of the world today, you know, openly gay, married to a guy. And this is just an incredible story to me. So it's kind of heartbreaking if someone thinks it's a bad country. On the other hand, it could sure do with some improving. I don't contest that. I don't know how a person could. That's the promise. That's the course that we've mainly been on. But I think some people are being taught to focus on the evils and not on the progress. Yeah, there's been this weird turn in parts of progressivism and conservatism, both toward this profound sense of pessimism and, and gloom and we'll never be redeemed, we'll never really be better. Um, that may be good for business if you're an activist, but it's wrong. You need to be able to hold both of these ideas in your mind at the same time. One, that there's still a lot of injustice, there's still a lot of things to fix, but the other is that there's been no better society for fixing things in all of human history than this one. To me, that's a pretty good note on which to end. Is there anything else you want to say? No, just that I enjoyed the conversation very much. I did too. You have a nice, informal, very conversational vibe, and I appreciated that you let it get a little bit personal. Thank you. Well, I certainly enjoyed it, and I take heart that there are progressives, you and others who are we're pushing hard to think about these things and create an environment where they can be talked about because that's got to be the right answer. That was Jonathan Rausch. Jonathan is at John Rausch on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.